This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Thank you all for being here. So I wish to thank Nancy for the invitation and Kodo for helping. How's the sound? Sound okay? Wonderful. Okay. I'm so happy today to be able to begin your series. <laughs> I understand that Zen Center will be doing a summer program on the three turnings of the wheel. So when Nancy asked me to give this talk, I said, well, that's a kind of complicated topic. There's much to cover in that topic. So it's good that I'll be first. That way, either I'll set a usable overview of the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma, or since I'm first, you can just put my talk aside and begin your regular program. She thought that was a good idea. <laughs> So, I want to talk to you about the three turnings of the Dharma wheel, the three Dharma chakras. Mm. To say it in a nutshell, this is a scheme that was devised late in the history of Buddhism, actually, some centuries after the Buddha was here. And it was devised as a way of talking about and reconciling why it seemed to some that the Buddha had taught so many differing paths to Dharma. It became the Mayana's way of talking about the three major philosophical shifts in the Buddha's teachings. Now, first I want to begin by saying that after the Buddha passed away, there were no images of him. Kodo, you getting those slides ready? Okay. For several centuries, and even until the present day in Southeast Asian Buddhism, the Buddha is represented by only footprints. We're going to see a slide of one of you. Mm. If you've traveled in Southeast Asian countries, then you've seen these footprints of the Buddha in various places. You also see a wheel, if you'll notice on the bottom, and a wheel in the center, and a wheel in between the footprints. But in, in Thai, in Cambodian and Laotian Buddhist countries, Sri Lanka, you'll often see the Buddha represented this way. He was here, but you can't see him. You can see the footprints, however, that he left. Okay, next slide, please. Much more common is seeing the Buddha represented by the wheel, the wheel of Dharma. 
a dharma chakra. Now, this particular wheel that I'm showing is a wheel from Karnak, a 13th century Hindu temple in Orisha state. And I show it because it's such incredible uh, detail, artistic detail. And also to say that the wheel was a very important symbol. Pre-Buddhist days, it was important for the Jains. It was important for later Hindus as this is a Hindu temple, the temple to the sun god in Orisha. And it's a Hindu temple. But you'll see that this wheel also has eight spokes. Please just look and count. Okay. Now in most Mayana places, and the next slide I'm going to show, and that'll be the end of slides, I think. The next slide, please, Kodo, shows what you'll likely see if you enter a Tibetan monastery. Here is the Dharma Chakra and the deer, representative of the deer park, where the Buddha set in motion the wheel of Dharma for the first time. Oh, the eight spokes you see. Now, why eight? We'll talk about that. Now, can we just stop the slides? Take a good little wheel and stop the slide. Okay, very good. I want to say a bit more about the wheel. It's very powerful. I've indicated that more religions than just Buddhism use it as a potent symbol. Why? Well, it represents power in the ancient Indian world. You might recall that at the Buddha's birth, it was prophesied by some of the Brahmin soothsayers that the Buddha would either become a world monarch, a chakra vartan, lord of the wheel, or he would become a Buddha. Now his father didn't want him to become a world, I mean, his father didn't want him to become a Buddha. And the soothsayer said to him, the, the father said, well, how can I prevent him from becoming uh, a Buddha? And they said, well, you can't let him see any suffering. If he doesn't see any suffering at all, um, he may grow up and uh, become this world ruler. But that the world ruler is called a chakra garden. Now, here's where it comes from. It comes from power and warfare. It was said that a chakra varden, wherever the wheels of the chariot that belonged to the world ruler touched the ground, wherever they touched the ground, that ground became the territory of the monarch, unless you were willing to fight him for it. This was a conquering wheel. This was a powerful wheel, wielded by powerful kings. So what is the Buddha doing when he teaches his first sermon? He's actually showing a wheel that's more powerful than conquering. He's showing a wheel that can liberate. The Buddha's first, first discourse, often translated first sermon, showing our the Christian bias and roots, <laughs> Western Buddhologist, first sermon. Uh, well, the name of that sutra is the Dharma Chakra Pravartana 
Sutra. The discourse setting in motion, pravartana, turning it, turning it on the wheel chakra of the dharma. So the Buddha's first discourse indicates that he is going to start in motion a different kind of wheel. And the implication is this wheel is more powerful, more far reaching than the chakras of a chakravartan. Mm. So what does the Buddha talk about in that first turning of the wheel? Just about everything we know about Buddhism. Oh, evam maya shrutam ekasmin samaye, spoken by Anand who recited all the Buddha's uh, sutra. The first sutra says, after saying, thus have I heard on a certain occasion when the Buddha was in the deer park at Ishipatana in Sarnath, he said to his first five disciples, mm, O bhikkhus, mm, these two extremes ought not to be followed by one who is in the path. What extremes? The extreme of overindulgence and sense pleasures and the extreme of overindulgence and self-mortification. Neither of these gives liberation, gives insight, uh, gives wisdom. And then he says, I, the Tathagata, having avoided these two extremes, mm, have found liberation. Then next line says, these, the avoidance of these two extremes is the middle path. Thirdly, he gives a synonym for the middle path. And the middle path, what is that? It is none other than the eightfold path. And so I got back to wheel. The eight spokes of that wheel that's representative of the Buddhist Dharma are representative of each of the eight oh, uh, guidelines, ethical guidelines, really. Right action, right speech, right concentration, right wisdom. The, the eightfold path is represented by each of the spokes of the Dharma wheel. So how in the world, why are we talking about uh, all the three Dharma wheels? Well, if you look at that first sermon, everything that the Buddha subsequently taught in his 45 years of teaching can be found in that first sermon. The middle way, the middle path got refined over and over again. So that how do we, how should we view dharmas? We should view them as existing in a certain way, but not in the way that we perceive. So we don't want to bend too much to uh, holding on. And we don't want to, we don't want to over-exaggerate when we see a thing and they become attached to it. We don't want to underestimate a thing and so develop hatred towards it. We, we need to see it in just the right way. Well, what, I'm in the, what I wanna say is that everything that, that the Buddha spins out over the next 45 years, one can see in that first discourse. And then of course, after he does the middle path in the eightfold way comes the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering, there is a cause of suffering there is liberation from suffering, the end of it, and there's a path leading to the cessation of suffering. And all the different meditative paths 
that have been developed in various countries over time can be found or subsumed under the path. Mm. So whether it's Zen or whether it's Wan Buddhism or whether it's Thai Buddhism, whether you're talking about the countries and the cultures, there seem to be different meditative methods. That's all they are. And all of those meditative methods comprise the path as delineated in the Four Noble Truths in that very first discourse. So it's not only called, it's not only the name given to the first sutra, the Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra. Oh, that's the first turning. Mm. But these three turnings have to do with key text, philosophical texts that become the foundation of the teaching, key foci, key methodologies that are focused on different things, focused on dharmas, focused on atman, focused on shunyata. Oh. These, mm, these make up the turnings. We shall go for it and see. The scheme that said there are three turnings of the dharma, you can imagine these were Mayana. So it's later than that first cluster of teachings. And these teachings, as I said, could be found throughout the Buddha's teaching. Any Theravadan, and introduce that word. I know you know what it means, but it's used instead of saying Hinayana, which was the Mayana way of classifying what had gone before it. Uh, we're the great vehicle, that was the lesser vehicle. So Theravada becomes sort of a generic name for all the early teachings of the Buddha, for all of them. And there were very many schools of Buddhism. Um, I didn't want to do that as a slide, but you should know that originally, <laughs> originally, Oh, this is a graphic that shows the early schools of Buddhism. There were 18. Um, a university professor once told me that if you wanted to study Zen Buddhism, if you want, excuse me, if you wanted to study Japanese Buddhism, one way of doing it was to talk about teachers and the specific sutra or meditative hook that they gave their students. And usually what you note over the course of history is that a certain teacher would, would um, streamline what was necessary to attain enlightenment. And that was a great uh, clue about how to memorize, if you will, Mm, how the teachings changed. For example, one teacher might say, oh, a Japanese teacher might say, liberation can be gained if you recite the Lotus Sutra. Another teacher would say, liberation can be gained if you recite one chapter of the Lotus Sutra. Another teacher would say, liberation can be gained if you uh, 
recite one shloka of the sutra. They would streamline. Uh, the great Zen master Dogen is renowned be because of how he streamlined what was necessary to gain liberation through Zen. So do we need to sit with a kung an, with a koan? Dogen says, no, we just need to sit. That's a sort of streamlining, but of course it's much more complicated than that. But the streamlining tells you the progress. In a similar way, the three turnings is a Mayana way of saying that early teaching of the Buddha and that early teaching that's um, encapsulated in all of the Theravadan Pali Canon, that was an early teaching of the Buddha. Mm. But then there's a second turning. And the second turning is said to have happened centuries after the Buddha, but was brought to our attention by a Mahayana philosopher whom you all know as the great Nagarjuna. Now there are many tales about Nagarjuna and how he came up with the so-called Pragnaparamita text. It said he went to the south. It said he went to the land of the um, Nagas. The Nagas were the keepers of wisdom, these serpentine beings who lived at the bottoms of the sea. Well, it, it said that Nagarjuna went to the land of the Nagas and he conquered them, Arjuna. Oh, he was the conqueror of the Nagas, Naga Arjuna, Nagarjuna. And he wrestled from them this great cache of wisdom text. And those wisdom texts uh, lay out for us all the ultimate that which you can't go beyond, wisdom, pragna. Oh, some pronounce that prajna. Oh, tika ha. Prajna paramita. So there are said to be pragna paramita texts, and Edward Kahn has translated them. You can find lots of translation these days. Edward Kahn made them popular in the, in the, the West. So there are pragna paramitas texts that are a hundred thousand shloka long. There are Pragnaparamita texts that are 25,000 verses long. There are the Pragnaparamita texts in 8,000 verses. Those in 300 verses, when you come to the most succinct, like the Diamond Sutras in 300 shloka, and then the Heart Sutra, which is just, oh, a page long. Oh, <laughs> the heart of Pragnaparamita. And I like to tell students that when you go into a Mayana temple these days, even now, someone is tasked in that Mayana uh, monastery or nunnery, their job is to constantly be reciting the Heart Sutra. Huh? Somewhere in that place, walked into a place, in a Mayana place, a Japanese place in Hawaii. And I said, 
is there really someone here reciting the Heart Sutra continuously? And I said, would you take me to that person? And they took me, you know, and there was someone reciting the Heart Sutra. This most succinct form. Now, what did Pragnaparamita texts teach that Nagarjuna found and came back with? Now, it said he went to the Naga lands. That also means, or some suggest, interpret, that he went to southern India. <laughs> Where? Mm. where in South India of Nagarjuna's day, there was not only a matriarchy, there were, there were women leaders, uh, women who had more influence on their husbands, women who practiced Buddhism as opposed to their husbands who practiced Hinduism after the Buddha. Mm. Tikaha, after the Buddha, Hinduism comes into being. Before that, it's called Brahmanism. It's a different religious tradition. At any rate, he went south and what was happening in the southern states was also um, the Greeks were meeting there. The Greek philosophers were there at that time. Um, and, and so there is a cult in South India, many areas actually of South India, where Sophia cults are on are in existence. So it could be that Nagarjuna went to Southern India at the time, we don't know. There's a lot of mythology surrounding Nagarjuna, who he was, uh, how long he lived, for example. But it said he brought back this cache of texts that had never been seen before. And what is their subject matter? Their subject matter is Shunyata. Shunyata, emptiness, emptiness. We translate emptiness or voidness. Oh. Westerners do that, but you know what's really important is to know what is meant by the terms. What is something void of? What is something empty of? You know, it's not all despair, emptiness, loneliness, existentialism, none of that. It's a way of talking about all oh, reality. And it's one of those foci that I mentioned earlier, this will get clearer, I hope, uh, soon. So Nagarjuna's texts, those texts he brought back, were all about shunyata and emptiness and how we as Buddhists could understand what was meant by shunyata, shunyata, you know? Uh, in some of the Theravadan texts, you find sutra where a monk is saying to the Buddha, uh, Lord Bhagavan, you talk so much, you say sunya, everything is sunya. What does that mean, everything is sunya? And in the Theravada text, you have these, these sort of dialogues where the Buddha talks with King Melinda and he, you know, he says, is the chariot this part of it? And the king has to say no. And the Buddha, so this construction, deconstruction thing, he, he runs on King Melinda till finally King Melinda understands that we name something, but that name is not, that name is not the reality. Tika, huh? Oh, that name is a part, it makes it up. But is there any such thing as that universal, that whole name? No, can't find it. Likewise, can't find this self. This was the Theravadans, the early turning. Mm. 
way of talking about Sunnah. So I can say it, I think, clearer now. Mm. Oh. In Theravadan texts, even though some of them mention Sunnah, Sunya, huh? The emphasis, and that's what the three turnings is about. The emphasis is on dharmas. Dharma, small d, means any experiential event. So it's not actually just a concrete thing. It's experiencing that concrete thing. Oh. But the fashioners of the three turnings says that the first turning folk, meaning Theravadins, were, mm, had a misconception. They thought that some dharma, small d, were actually real reality out there in the world. And so, as my teacher would say, because, because they were out there in the world, the Theravans turned their focus for gaining liberation on their Atmans. In other words, don't deal with those things. Those dharmas, they are there, but oh, what's the meditative hook for us? Apart from the five aggregates, there is non-self. So the meditation hook for the Theravadan tradition, according to the schema, is Atmanaratnya. There is no self in the self. That's the medit. So going with these turnings, there are key texts. There are key philosophical views. There are key ontological views. For some, we're going to see that the third one doesn't recognize ontology at all. Oh, and there are key meditative hooks. You got it. I hope I'm being clear. There'll be question and answers. <laughs> so, oh. So the Theravadan tradition says there are dharmas in the world. Now, they're not dharmas like we might say, book, ball, this, that, or the other. In fact, Oh, the different 18 schools had different numbers of dharmas they recognized. I find that amazing, huh? This is a list of the 75 dharmas of the Kusha school. The Kusha school means it's a school that takes as its chief book, the Abhidharma Kosha of Vasubandhu. They recognize 75 dharmas. Now, what are those dharmas like? One is mind. You know, so it's not a book and a ball. Uh, another dharma is perception. Another dharma is idea. Another dharma is energy. Another dharma is belief. Uh, for this school, there were 75. For a school before it, there were 100. And as you move through the different schools, the number of dharmas lessens. When you get to Nagarjuna, there aren't any more dharmas. Huh? All is shunya. And the meditative hook is both atmanaratmya, there's no self in the self, 
and there is no self in any dharma whatsoever. That's when shunyata becomes blanket with the pragnaparamita text. Nagarjuna's take on the on the Pragnaparamita text, which he brought back, and he founded a school called Madhyamaka, his take was absolutely every dharma is empty. Everyone, there is no exception to this. Ah. So Nagarjuna writes his, his own key philosophical text, Mula Madhyamaka Karakas, the verses on the Madhyamaka view, and it's a great text. The word Shunyata is not mentioned anywhere, and it's all about Shunyata. It's brilliant. It's really exceptional. So the teaching of Shunyata, what is that about? Tikaha. So we've had this, oh, if you will, emphasis on dharmas, whether they're out there or they're in there, they're experiential. And then you have this second turning. Second turning is Pragnaparamita, and its offshoot, philosophical offshoot, Madhyamaka. I wrote about these turnings in my graduate dissertation, and the book that came out talking about them, this may be much clearer, I hope. Oh, the book came out in 1979, Columbia U Press, and this is what I said then. So maybe I'll, I'll at the second turning, I'll, I'll give you a gist of the whole of the three turnings. Okay, I'm reading from pages 14, 15 to 16, just a little bit of them. Mayana Buddhism recognizes three so-called turnings of the wheel of dharma. It is a phrase used to refer to the three divisions of the scripture, namely the early scriptures of the Hinayana, I said, the intermediate scripture, including the Pragnaparamita literature and the Madhyamaka doctrine. And third, oh, what is called by some scholars, I was refuting this, a kind of idealism. Oh. So some, some Buddhologists refer to the three turnings trying to help us Western philosophers understand what they focused on. Call them one, the turning of naive realism, two, the turning of criticism, meaning Nagarjuna, and three, the turning of idealism. Now my book was written to say, was a, was a translation of a Sangha who founded the third, so-called turning yogachar to say asanga very well understood what was meant by shunyata so he wasn't reinstating if you will that mind is somehow more real than anything else so i was trying to correct that view so here we go this uh and so i'll read one more paragraph from this one might imagine that the, th the three as representing those stages of philosophical development within Buddhism, which took as their respective metaphysical foci, one, things, and here is meant dharma in the broadest sense, as any phenomenon, fact, or event that can be perceived, known, or thought to have a separate existence, uh, followed by two, a consuming interest in shunyata as the denial of thingness, 
dharma nairatmya. That came along with the theory of non-self of dharmas and the non-self of self. And lastly, the identification of these two. Identification of these two, that is the identification of things and voidness. So the first, there's an emphasis on things as though they're separate from I, consciousness, mind. Then there's this overwhelming emphasis on shunya, 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 shunya. And then there's a third turn. How after shunya, 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 do you get to something else? Well, you do with the third turning of the wheel, which is the school that based, just as Nagarjuna's was based on the Pragnaparamita text, another school arises called Yogachara. And the Yogachara oh, reads that shunya a different way, or it, if you will, changes the focus. So we've had their dharmas I'll focus on Self is non-existent. I is non-existent. I is just made up. It's constructed of the five aggregates. My liberation will come when I see that, that apart from the five aggregates, there is no I. Then the second turning, shunya, shunya, shunya. Well, then we get things like the heart of that second turning uh, can be seen in the Heart Sutra. But the Heart Sutra is the quintessence of all the Pragnaparamita's texts. But what does it say? I tell students, it's important to see who's talking to one another in these sutras. Sorry for jamming so much in here, but it's important who's speaking. So in the Heart Sutra, what do you have? You have a conversation. Buddha's meditating, as he always is. You have a conversation, however, in the heart sutra, just the, the most succinct, a conversation between Shariputra, who is representative of the Theravadan uh, wise wisdom person, and Avilokiteshvara, or the Lord of Compassion. Mayana is about how compassion can temper this wisdom. Hmm? So it's a conversation where Aviloki-Teshvara watches the Buddha meditating, turns to Shariputra and says, this is how you should do it. Oh. Now, what does he tell him? He tells him, next sentence, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Form is no other than emptiness, and emptiness is no other than form. This, this is as we, this is the, uh, uh, the pinnacle of Nagarjuna's, mm, what Nagarjuna was basing his philosophy on. But that wasn't the emphasis. People who came to, who came after Nagarjuna, Buddhists who came after Nagarjuna were left hmm, actually despairing. How can we carry on if everything is empty? If everything is empty, 
Then comes a Sangha, 200 years after Nagarjuna. A Sangha looks at the Heart Sutra and says, just as Zen masters say, so easily, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. The identification there is what's important. The identification of the two is what's important. And you, and for yoga charans, the emphasis turned back, if you will. It's like a cycle coming all the way around. The emphasis is not looking out, but it's looking in in a different way. The yoga charans, hmm, the yoga charans say, we have to look within and how do we reconcile that everything is empty? We, we look at it a different way. So Asanga says this, it's not idealism. It says that everything we take to be a dharma is first something that has come to our minds, to our consciousness. This sounds so simple, but <laughs> took centuries of it. So yoga charans are saying, we don't experience any of those dharmas directly. We experience them, experience them through the mind. And so the school becomes known as mind only. It's not about idealism. Asanga is saying, just as the early Buddhists were saying, we have experience with something. Maybe we see it. We see a, a pool of water. And he says, owing to our minds, we might see that as a cooling river. Birds might see that as a place to swoop down and have water. Some uh, demons and hungry ghosts run away from that because they see it as only pus and blood. Asanga saying, our minds change those things. Quantum physics, that's all it was. Our minds change those things. Or the rope and the snake, if you will. I was scared when I thought it was a snake, but then I saw it was a rope and okay. Huh? Asanga emphasizes that our minds are what, mm, what tells us what we are seeing. And if we know that, oh, we can, and then all these meditations come out of that too. It's called yoga char, the way of the yogin. And uh, so we can use our mind flexibly. We can, so for Tantra, it was great. Yoga char, you know. Uh, our minds tell us what we experience. Okay. As Lama Tukdanyechi would say, oh. We spend so much time thinking about ourselves negative. Let's think about ourselves positive because our minds are so important in what we experience. So that's Yogacara and that was the third turning. Now, I've said all this to say to you, especially you Zen practitioners, I love it. Oh, that though the... Uh, 
the Yogacharas came up with this threefold scheme and they did so in, the, in two texts, one the Lankavatara and the, the other the Samdhinirmochana Sutra, the unraveling the secrets. In, in that Samdhinirmochana, which is so, so Pragnaparamita is essential for Nagarjuna, right? Samdhinirmochana is essential for Asanga. And in the Samdhinirmochana Sutra, the unraveling the secrets, you have a, you have a, a monk saying to the, the Buddha, well, you know, Bhagavan, sometimes you, you taught this Dharma theory, and at other times you thought you taught this emptiness theory, and then sometimes you say, don't worry about it. Is my mind just feeble and weak as it is, no doubt? But have you taught different things? In other words, this sutra is the locus for the Buddha saying, no, I've taught the same thing. I just taught it depending upon the listener's ability to understand it. So yes, I taught the Dharma theory for those who needed it and it made them ethical, made them turn away from dharmas in the world, made them, made them realize renunciation. He says this in the scripture and made them realize renunciation and turn towards uh, gaining wisdom through Atmanaratmiya saying that the self is not uh, concrete. And then there were other people who had this fascination with dharmas, he says. And so to them, I taught shunya, 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 so that they would give up that their great attachment and attain, attain liberation. And so there were some who um, could, he said, and now I'm teaching this third teaching which says dharmas and shunya are the same for those really, really wise ones. Now, this is what, <laughs> what uh, I'm trying to get to. So this scheme was developed first in this sutra called the Samdhinirmochana Sutra. And it was developed over time from the first century CE to the third century, the most uh, complete, um, version of it, third century CE. So it's the latest text. And in the, in the 12th century, uh, Budon, who, who, Budin, who was uh, the redactor of the Tibetan canon, who gave us four ways of analyzing various tantras, Budon says it so simply, these three turnings. <laughs> in one line, Budon, who's written the famous history of Buddhism in India and Tibet, Budun says, our teacher, the foremost of the Shakyas, endowed with the four miraculous powers, has taught us these things, second sentence. He has revealed his doctrine in all of its, of its three forms. And those three forms are the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma. Dharma chakra. Well, that was Bidun, uh, 12th, 13th century. Oh, but you in the Chan Zen tradition have the Tang philosopher, Qing Wang Wei Xin. Wei Xin said, in the ninth century, I hope some of you will recognize his saying. Let me be sure I can read it correctly. 
Wei Xin said in the ninth century, before I studied the classics of Zen, I looked at mountains just as mountains. But now that I've studied for more than 30 years, I see no mountains, no rivers. But now, oh, with my heart at peace, I once again see mountains as mountains, rivers as rivers. Now, the whole point of this talk is to say that there are philosophical, literary, and very poetic ways of talking about the three turnings of the Dharma wheel. And this Zen poet captured it like this. There are mountains when I'm just beginning. But after studying, I see that there are no mountains. And then my heart is at peace because the, I see the mountains again. This is the three turnings, shortcut. And it was 1967 before the Scottish folk singer Donovan was given that phrase. And he wrote a song, first there is a mountain, then there isn't, then there is. First there is a mountain, then there isn't, then there is. Those are the three turnings. First, I see, ah, looks like a mountain, concrete, it's a dharma. Then I hear shunyata, shunyata, shunyata. And I think if I'm practicing correctly, there's no mountain, there is no mountain. But then I understand, oh, that the mountain and emptiness, that emptiness is the mountain's nature, that there is no difference, that form is emptiness and that very emptiness is form and my heart is at peace. So different skillful means for talking about all oh, the three turnings or the three you know, how you, what you emphasize in the Buddhist teaching. That's all. That's all. First there is a mountain, then there isn't, then there is. Now, some of you have undoubtedly heard that phrase, have you not? You might not have heard the 1967 Donovan song. My students say, who is that? But at any rate, oh, that's one way of uh, encapsulating the whole of the Buddha's teachings. And I hope it's been helpful to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.